0: Well good morning. I want to echo what Chris said in the opening. Thank you so much for being here. I know that we have a lot of visitors week to week and we want to make you feel welcome and so I hope that you will hang around let us get to know you a little bit. We are in the middle of a series. It's entitled One Word. Our congregation here has a devotional book that takes one word from the Bible each week and it culminates on Sunday with us talking about that word And I want to advertise what we're going to do next year so you can kind of get a leg up on that. If you would, you can go to the Jenkins Institute. It's been on the slides and we've been advertising it. And pick up a His Word devotional book. So instead of one word, next year we're going to go through his word, and we will actually be reading through the entire New Testament, and uh, in our classes, in the sermons, be focusing on the New Testament, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, and it's obviously going to depend a lot on you um, If you get through it or not, because we can't preach on everything every Sunday included in the New Testament, but I'll be taking a section from whatever the reading or the scriptures are for that week, and just like the one-word study on Sunday morning, I will be looking at certain pieces of scripture for that devotional week. That makes sense. JenkinsInstitute.com, you can go there and pick up uh, a His Word book. Uh, If you would, do that by the first of the year so you can get going with us on that. You know, I want to I want to start this morning since our word is crucify. I want to start by reading you something from a medical professional. His name is C. Truman Davis. He is a medical doctor, and he explains the crucifixion from a physiological perspective. And I want to read to you what he says. He says, the cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire. Feels for the depression at the front of the wrist, and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot. And with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. And as he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. But finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain, deep in the chest, as the pericardium, the sac around the heart, fills with serum, and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue uh, fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp even a small gulp of air. He can feel the chill of death Creeping through his tissues, finally he is able to allow the body to die. Now, I want you to imagine that this description applies to you. Think about that for a moment. Imagine that it was you who was beaten beyond recognition. Imagine that it was you fastened to that old rugged cross while people mocked, ridiculed, spit in your face, drove the nails. Imagine that it was you fighting for air, knowing that death was imminent. Imagine that it was you. Imagine it was you as you listened to these scriptures. And being in agony, he was praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Imagine it was you. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And they had mocked him. They took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments and he led him away to crucify him. Imagine it was you, but standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge "'full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop "'and brought it up to his mouth. "'Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, "'he said, "'It is finished.'" And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Imagine that it was you. Because unless and until you can see yourself as fastened to that cross, you will never ever understand the meaning and magnitude of your own salvation. Until you realize it was you that deserved every bit of that, you will never truly grasp the meaning and magnitude of your salvation. Until you understand what it means to be a sinner saved from the fires of hell, until you understand that it was you that deserves hell, you will never truly understand what Jesus went through. Until you can put yourself there on that cross, you just won't get it. One author said it this way. He said, our attitude to the crucifixion must be that of self-identification with the rest of human nature. We must say, we did it. And the inability to adopt something of the same attitude in the case of 20th century events has caused our phenomenal failure to deal with the problem of evil. It's kind of like in a London newspaper many, many years ago, they were asking readers to write in and answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.A. Chesterton responded, I am. We're the problem. And we must see ourselves as deserving the same death that Jesus endured. You know, there there are some words that when we hear them, they evoke an image, right? Certain words that when we just hear that word, we immediately have an image conjured up in our minds, like Holocaust. That's a horrific word, one that brings up a horrific image in our minds. How about the word cancer? Nobody wants to hear their doctor utter that word. It's a terrible word. What about the numbers 9-11? Those numbers mean something to us now, don't they? Many of us remember what we were doing on the morning of September the 11th when those American Airlines passenger jets that were hijacked crashed into the World Trade Center towers. And there are some words that might have multiple meanings, but when we hear them, we only know them of having one meaning, right? When you hear Vietnam, you don't think about a geographical location. Most of the time when you hear Vietnam, you think of the Vietnam War, right? Or Pearl Harbor. We know that's a spot out in the Pacific, but we know Pearl Harbor most because of what happened, you know, back on December the 7th when Japan attacked that island, that harbor, and caused the United States to enter into World War II. What about this word? What about the word cross? What do you think of when you hear the word cross? Maybe you think of Jesus. Maybe you think of you know, what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps you think of an emblem that sits atop of a church or maybe displayed somewhere in your home. Maybe you think of you know, a, a piece of jewelry or, or maybe an emblem that is tattooed on your body somewhere. Certainly, I, I don't want to discredit anyone that wears a cross around their neck or someone who displays one in their home. Not at all. That's not what I'm getting at. But I think what happens all too often is the cross has been so sanitized that we really don't think about its true meaning anymore. Its central message has been lost. Growing up in the Catholic Church, we had a lot of images of Jesus on the cross, and it always struck me as odd that every one of them had a little drop of blood here, a little drop of blood here, a little drop of blood on his feet, and a little drop of blood coming out of his side. That's not the description I read about in Scripture. In fact, most likely, he would have been totally and completely unrecognizable, covered in blood, If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, there are people who say, oh, it's too graphic. It's probably more graphic than that. That probably didn't even do it justice. We have missed the central message of the cross, I think. And the central message of the cross is threefold. Number one, it's death. Plain and simple, it is death. And it's not just that Jesus died, it's how he died. The cross was a symbol of humiliation. Only the most hardened criminals went to the cross, and the method of crucifixion ended with the victim naked, with no rights, no reputation, and no recourse. Secondly, the cross is about sin. Your sin, my sin, not Jesus's sin. You know, we can memorialize Jesus' death. We can think about his death on the Lord's Supper, and we should, but never forget why he died in the first place. May we never forget why he went to the cross in the first place. Don't cry over his death without remembering why he had to die. And third, the cross is about victory. Above all else, the cross was for God. You ever think about that? Who put Jesus to death? We can say the Romans, we would say the Jews had a hand in that, we would say Pilate had a hand in that. God put Jesus to death. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God didn't drive the nails. God didn't flog him. But this was all a part of God's plan. It was going to happen. It had to happen. God crushed his son. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? But God didn't flog Jesus. He didn't drive the nails. The cruelty was done by wicked people. But, but these sinners did what God had purposed. Why would God do something so heinous? Why would he allow something so terrible to happen to his son? And the answer to that is very simple, love. It sounds silly, but that's very true. It's, It's God showing us that he wants us. He wants that relationship with us. It wasn't a good thing that he had to forsake his son there on the cross, but if sinners were to have an intimate fellowship with God, it had to happen this way. And you know, every word that we have been discussing over the last few weeks, whether it be justification, propitiation, atonement, uh, redemption, whatever the word is, they all find their meaning in the cross. Justification means that I can stand before a holy God and be held not guilty. A holy God can look on a sinner like me and say, not guilty. You wouldn't have that without the cross. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. You don't appease God's wrath without a sacrifice and without Jesus going to the cross. Redemption is the price of being bought. It means being bought back. We have been purchased by the blood of the slain lamb. That doesn't happen without the cross. And then you have atonement. And atonement, as we talked about last week, is the blood of a perfect sacrifice covering the bill for us. The bill for sin has been paid. And you don't get that without the only begotten Son going to the cross. So you have justification, propitiation, redemption, atonement. These are all crosswords. And they find their meaning in the crucifixion. They would not be a part of our salvation vocabulary had it not been for the cross. You know what really bugs me? What really irritates me is when a preacher or a teacher, a religious teacher, stands up and wants to be all touchy-feely about this kind of stuff. That bugs me. This isn't manby-pamby stuff, folks justification, propitiation, redemption, atonement. These are biblical concepts that have teeth. You, know, you hear people say sometimes, well, you know, we, we really just need to concentrate on the love of Jesus. That's all that really matters. We need to just set aside all this stuff and unite at the cross of Christ. Give me a break. That's ridiculous. Jesus died for something. Not everyone can be right here. You can't unite on falsehood. You can't decide we're all going to just set this aside and love Jesus. That's not how this whole thing works, right? Like the Geico commercials. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. These are concepts that are deeply theological, but they're also deeply biblical, and they have teeth to them. And you have to understand where they derive. They derive from the cross. You can't set things like this aside without setting aside a Savior. Without setting aside Jesus. This is life and death kind of stuff. This is heaven and hell kind of stuff. Someone had to die on a cross so that you could be saved. So stop treating the cross like it's some cheap trinket sold at a weekend garage sale. Because it's so much more than that. It's like when we were in Branson many years ago. I came from Cassville, Missouri, which was right down the road from Branson. And we'd go quite often. And we're walking through one of those antique malls in Branson. And they have this advertisement, cheap crosses. Too many people want to pick up a cheap cross. Understand that that's not good enough. When it comes to this whole idea of professing a faith in Jesus... We need to be picking up a cross that costs us something because it cost Jesus. In his book, Cries from the Cross, a great book, by the way, Erwin Lutzer says this, No one can experience the eternal favor of God if they bypass the cross. The cross is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. It is the hub that holds the spokes of God's purposes in grand unity. The Old Testament prophets pointed toward it, and the New Testament disciples proclaimed it. When we cling to the old rugged cross, as the familiar hymn encourages us to do, we are not doing so out of mere sentimentality. The cross is the heart of our message and the heart of our power to combat the encroaching darkness. This isn't cheap stuff. This isn't touchy-feely sentimentality. This is heaven-hell kind of stuff. And speaking of that old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, have you ever concentrated on the words? I know we sing that song a lot. Have you ever paid attention to the words? Let's do that.
1: On a hill far away stood an old... at is-
0: You're going to cling to an old rugged cross? Why why would you do that? A wondrous attraction for me? The instrument of humiliation, of capital punishment, is something I'm going to cling to? Something that's a wondrous attraction for me? Uh, That that doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, what in the world was George Bennard thinking of when he wrote this? You see, if you follow the words, you understand that the negativity is going to be replaced by positivity. If you understand the cross was ugly, but it's going to give way to beauty, right? That even though it was an instrument of execution, Sunday is coming. A day of hope for hopeless people like you and me, right? Why cling to the old rugged cross? Well, let's let Paul answer that question. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." We cling to the old rugged cross because that's how we identify with Jesus. What is this life all about? What is the goal of this life? And don't say to get to heaven because that's not the goal. The goal of this life is to identify with Jesus. To be as much like Jesus as possible. Remember, several weeks ago we talked about disciple and what it means. It means to be exactly like your teacher. That's what a disciple was in the first century. We're trying to be exactly like our teacher. And you know what? If you identify with Jesus and you strive to be exactly like him, you'll get to heaven. That's why that's not the goal. Your destination will never be in question if you seek to identify with Jesus. That's the goal. That was Paul's goal. In fact, he considered everything else to be refuse. The word that's used there in the original language is dung. He considered everything else to be dung compared to knowing Christ Jesus. If that meant suffering, if that meant pain and agony, if that meant going to an old rugged cross, so be it. I want to identify with Jesus in every single way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the question becomes, have you been crucified with Christ? Do you identify with Jesus in every single way? Are you seeking fellowship with his sufferings? Have you considered everything else in your life to be garbage compared to following him? Have you conformed to his death? Now, these are tough questions for sure. And this is not easy. Anything worth having is not easy, right? And Jesus never said it would be easy, only that it would be worth it. So this is not easy stuff, but what if Paul is leading by example here? What if his words were meant to show us what true discipleship looks like instead of what we think discipleship is? And you know what I'm talking about. We think discipleship in this time and place is coming to church every time the doors are open. Read your Bible, say your prayers every now and then, and you're good to go. Discipleship's about being a pretty good person, right? Well, if Paul teaches us anything, he teaches us that it's about so much more than that. It's about identifying with Jesus in every single way. Jesus came to this earth, dwelt among us, and went to a cross. And you know why? For identification. So that we could identify with him. It was all about identifying with us with you and me, and so that we could identify with him. From a humble birth in a manger, to being tempted in the wilderness, to being nailed to a cross for our sins, Jesus came in touch with humanity, our struggles, our weaknesses, our humanness. And if we're going to identify with him, then we must cling to that old rugged cross. Our Lord defined discipleship like this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Folks, listen to me. There is a big difference in carrying a cross and being crucified on one. And you know what the difference is? Very simple, one word, nails. That's the difference. And if we are truly going to understand the meaning and magnitude of the cross, and if we are going to really wrap our minds and our hearts and our souls around what it means to be a true disciple, then there are three nails that have to pierce our heart. The first one is the nail of forgiveness. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. You are never more unlike Jesus than when you refuse to forgive. Plain and simple. You know, there's an author by the name of of William Ward who stated, we are most like beasts when we kill, we are most like men when we judge, and we are most like God when we forgive. Who could be harder to forgive than the people who were crucifying Jesus? Jesus. And yet from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, being a disciple means that I have to set aside what I believe are my rights. I have to set aside my feelings. I mean, who who feels like forgiving their enemies? Who feels like praying for their enemies? Who feels like turning the other cheek or going the extra mile? Who feels like returning good for evil? Probably nobody in this room. But Jesus didn't ask us how we felt about it because you have to understand the people that you hate, God wants in heaven. That's a difficult concept for us sometimes, but the very people that were driving the nails, God would have rather had them in heaven. He would rather that they would not be doing what they were doing. He wanted them to be forgiven. He wants your enemies in heaven. He loves them as much as he loves you. That's Hard for us sometimes, but you've got to set aside your feelings. You've got to understand that when it comes to being a disciple, forgiveness is hard, but it's essential. We must be led by the character of Jesus and the will of God. Secondly, the nail of trust has to pierce our heart. From the cross, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing in Scripture indicates that God ever answered that question. In a much lesser way, we wonder sometimes why God has forsaken us. Why did I lose my job? Why did I get cancer? Why did my wife leave me? Why did my husband leave me? Why did I go bankrupt? We wonder where God is in our adversity At the darkest hours of the cross, when Jesus felt alone and without God, when he was the most vulnerable, is when he found himself most connected to mankind, right? To our sins to who we are, our struggles, our adversity, the loneliness, the separation from God. That's when he most identified with us, but that moment was not the end of his story, and it's not the end of our story either. We trust in God. You know, a big thing in sports right now is trust the process. You've got to trust the process as a Christian. You've got to see a bigger picture here, and yes, We see David ask why. We see Jesus ask why. It's not wrong to ask why, but the bigger question is how. How do I get through this with God on my side? The most important thing is that I prepare properly for heaven by identifying with Jesus and whatever it takes to get me there. Whatever it takes. I'm willing to endure because I want to be most like him. I want to get to heaven. We may experience moments of darkness. The cross was brutal, it was humiliating, it was disgusting, and it was ugly. But in those moments, Jesus moved toward God, not away from Him. Did you notice that? It is just a fact, and I have seen it over 18 plus years in ministry, that when people are going through dark moments in their lives, they move away from church and away from God. Who do you need most in your dark moments? God and the church. And yet most people move away from God and the church in their darkest moments. Don't do that. Don't. You need God. And God didn't intend for you to battle this alone. That's why the church is there. Jesus moved towards God in that dark moment. Because, because the cross was full of darkness, it also revealed beauty. Beauty. It was a means to an end. The darkness doesn't last forever. If the Bible is nothing, it is a book of hope. And when all is said and done, when sin and the devil have done their worst, the end result on that final scoreboard in heaven will read, we win. Victory is assured. But in the meantime, it's trust in God and His plan that helps us survive. And in the same way, we have to have the nail of surrender pierce our heart. Just as Jesus was breathing his last breath, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And again, we see the trust factor, right? Jesus may have asked why, but he never said, I quit. In the end, Jesus knew that the best place for him, the best place for his spirit, was in the hands of God. And the same is true with you. No matter what you're going through, the best place for you is to be in God's hands. And don't you find it interesting that none of the gospel writers say that Jesus died? They don't say, and Jesus died. They make a point to say that he committed his life to God's hands. Why? That's significant because the writers wanted us to understand, the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand that that was not the end. It was just the beginning. And in a similar way, it's the same with us. When we bury that old sinful self, when we crucify that old sinful self, and we are baptized and we rise from that watery grave, it's just the beginning. We so often look at baptism as the end in the church. Well, I'm baptized, I'm good. No, that's just the beginning. That starts your daily walk with God. That's where it all begins. The cross is where it all began for us. That wasn't the end. That was revealing something beautiful, and, and there's something great on the horizon because of the cross. If I've been crucified with Christ, then it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, then I wave the white flag. I completely surrender, and I realize that I'm living for someone and something that's bigger than me. Paul said, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Do you, do you believe that? Do you trust, do you believe, and are you convinced that God is able? That you can entrust your soul to him, and in the end, it's all going to be good. In the end, it's going to be eternity with him. I don't know about you, but I'm all in. I want to read from the same script that God's reading from. I want to trust the process. I want to be be on the same page and living out His agenda day in and day out so that when I leave this earthly tent, I get to spend eternity with the Heavenly Father. I hope you want that. I was reading a story the other day. I don't know if it's true. I hope it is because it makes it funnier. There's this guy who was a cameraman for CNN And he was covering the wildfires in Colorado uh, several years ago. And he wanted to get some footage for the nightly news. And so he called the local airport and arranged to have a twin-engine plane waiting on him so that he could go up and take some camera shots from above. So he arrives at the airport and sitting... There is a, is a twin-engine plane, it's, it's running, it's ready to go, and so he hops in and says, let's go. And so the pilot takes off, he turns into the wind, and he's flying, and the cameraman says, uh, uh, go over the valley here, because I, I, I need to get some shots. And he goes, he looks confused. The pilot says, well, why do we want to go there? And the cameraman says, well, I, I, I need to get some shots for the news tonight, I mean, I, I need to get some shots of this, these wildfires and, and all that, I want to put it on the news tonight. And the pilot's very confused. He says, so you're not my flight instructor? You talk about a a case of serious mistaken identity, right? I mean, that, that would cause you to be a little nervous, right, for both of you. When we're talking about discipleship, when we're talking about being a Christian, when we're talking about what it means to totally and completely surrender, it is our responsibility to let the world know that this, this is who we are. There's no mistaken identity here. When people look at Chris McCurley, I don't want them to see the preacher at Oldham Lane Church of Christ or the husband of Libby. I want them to see Jesus. Same is true with all of you. When they look at you, they look at James, they don't see pharmacists. They see Jesus. Look at Eddie, they don't see the guy that climbs those towers for AEP. They see Jesus, right? Right? They look at Blake, they don't see student, they see Jesus. Because if we're going to tell others about the Redeemer, then we must act like the redeemed. May there never be a case of mistaken identity with us. May we never fall into the trap of believing that being a disciple is just about coming to church and being a pretty good person during the week. There's so much more involved. It's about identifying with my Savior and striving to be exactly like Him. If you need to be crucified this morning, and what I mean by that is if you need to come forward and you need to bury that old sinful self in baptism, rise a new creature in Christ and begin a daily walk with Him, then we want to take care of that this morning. Maybe you've done that. And maybe you, you, you feel like that you're just not clinging to that old wooden cross. Maybe you need prayers. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible and learn more about what it means to read from the same script and to trust the process. We want to help you with that as well. We don't want you to leave here without being right with God. Come now as we stand and as we sit.